But anyway, great to see everybody here uh, this morning, um, and I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Acts as we continue our journey through the early days of, uh, of the church and uh, see what, uh, what God was doing there. You know, uh, we're talking today about the nature of suffering, uh, because as we saw in recent weeks with Paul's uh, journey, once he got to Jerusalem, boy, the, the suffering and, and persecution really intensified. Of course, he was no stranger to that, right? You know, throughout his three missionary journeys, he was beaten, left for dead, imprisoned, all kinds of uh, things. But uh, it really seems to be heating up as he ultimately makes his way uh, to martyrdom. And, uh, you know, years ago, uh, one of my mentors, Dr. Bob Leitner, who was a longtime member of the theology faculty at Dallas Seminary in Dallas, Texas, he was involved in a terrible plane crash, and he was in a single-engine plane that flipped over during takeoff. He was badly injured, bruised beyond recognition. His wife, Pearl, said when she saw him in the hospital, she said, quote, I looked at this black mass of flesh and didn't even know who he was. Well, thankfully, he did recover, and that was before I knew him, and he ended up having a profound impact in my life for some 30 years. The Lord used him in many ways. Uh, I had him twice, actually, in t- at two different levels. I had him in my master's level and in my doctoral level, so uh, he was uh, just a great blessing. But uh, Dr. Leitner said this, reflecting on that experience of the plane crash. He said, quote, I learned things I didn't know I needed to learn. And that's the way it is with suffering. If we have a proper understanding and perspective towards suffering, then it's going to teach us things we did not know we needed to learn. I have a text from a, a dear friend of mine who died four years ago uh, that I hang on to, and I go back to it again and again when I'm facing you know, unexpected, puzzling, sorrowful, grieving moments. Whenever life kind of throws me a curve, I keep it in an Evernote with a bunch of other quotes that I've picked up along the, through the years. And, uh, and my friend, who, by the way, was... Uh, same age, it was, I guess, the same age as me, six kids like we have, and uh, just a solid friend. We uh, talked almost every day. He was awake to the world as it really exists. He was uh, solid on the gospel uh, and a pastor. Anyway, died in his sleep completely unexpectedly. But uh, in his text, my friend said, quote, the thing is, I've often noticed that when things go well, We humans rarely take the time to thank God for that. But when things go poorly, we often think God arranged the negative circumstances for our consumption. Perhaps God has figured out that we are more likely to listen to Him, and He is more likely to get our attention through negative events that demonstrate to us our need, rather than through positive events that can often simply feed our pride And that makes the situation even worse. And he ended, I'm just thinking, with a little smiley face. Well, this morning as we return to our study of Acts, we we pick up with Paul, having finished his speech from the steps outside the temple gate, and he's about to be basically torn to bits by a deceived and irrational mob. And as sort of a preface before we get to the to the passage that we want to look at this morning, I want us to go back to the words of our Lord Himself at another pivotal time in human history. This indeed is a pivotal time uh, for the church today. It was a pivotal time in Paul's day as he had finished his journeys. He was about to be martyred. 
and the church was going to kind of enter into a whole new era. Uh, and this was 57 AD was when the events we're going to be reading about took place, so 34 years into the church. But if we go back, you know, 34 years earlier, uh, or 24, I guess I should say, years earlier to 33 AD, Jesus Christ was about to go through the most horrific death any human has ever faced, ever since then or, or before then. And he gathers his close friends together, trying to get them to understand what's about to happen. And he, he says all kinds of just amazing things in that section. It's John chapters 13 to 17 in that upper room. You know, he washed the disciples' feet. He institutes the Lord's Supper. But listen to what he says here as you see it on the screen. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the, the world. This same Jesus, talking to his disciples there, would later tell Paul, Saul at the time, when he confronted him on the road to Damascus, the same thing, that you're going to suffer many things for my name. So what we're reading about really is the fulfillment of prophecy. And Paul certainly understood that. But when you get to Acts chapter 22, the remaining chapters of Acts describe Paul the prisoner. They describe his trials before the Jews, his appeals to Caesar. And I can only imagine how the book of Acts would have played out if Paul had not gone to Jerusalem and been arrested. Remember how recently when we were kind of working our way through Acts, we talked about how those people that Paul was staying with desperately pleaded with him not to go to Jerusalem. I mean, just imagine how church history might have changed if Paul had not been obedient, uh, steeled himself, knowing what was coming. Because remember, a prophet had told him he was going to face intense persecution in Jerusalem and instead hadn't gone. I mean, what do we know happens after this? Well, while he's a prisoner in Rome, Paul wrote letters to the Ephesians, the Philippians, the Colossians, and to Philemon. I mean, I don't know about you, but I kind of like those books of the Bible that has some rich truth and encouragement in it. That never would have happened if Paul hadn't been obedient and gone to Jerusalem. And by the way, those passages have some desperately needed truths for the church today. Uh, Paul, while in prison, is writing about suffering to the Ephesians. He talks about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6. He talks about uh, how to rejoice in the midst of suffering to the church in Philippi. He talks about how our citizenship is in heaven. And he talks to the Colossians about how, you know, we're just, you know, our home is up, is up in heaven. But Paul didn't reject the Lord and not go to Jerusalem. He went, and that's why we have such great truths. Paul's trials, even though they are extended over a much greater period of time and depicted in much fuller detail, resemble Jesus' trials that we read about. You know, from the time Jesus gave these words to the disciples, it was less than 24 hours, and he was laying in a tomb. All of that happened just like that. Satan swooped in, seized the opportunity, indwelt Judas, was able to betray him, have him hastily arrested, hastily tried, hastily uh, flogged, hastily taken up to a hill called Golgotha, and nailed to a cross, 
and then quickly put in a tomb so that by Friday morning he was in the tomb. Paul's experience was much more lengthy, several years in fact. But we see some similarities. Both Jesus and Paul appear before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. We're going to look at that this morning. The Roman governor and a Jewish king. And both are repeatedly declared innocent and yet never released. That's pretty significant. Because I can tell you from personal experience, some of the worst form of suffering is to be falsely accused and have to bear up under it. And that's what we see with Paul this morning. So we find Paul escaping in our text one dangerous situation only to be thrust immediately into another. And what I'd like us to do is just make four observations about suffering. The Bible has a lot to say about suffering. I've taught and preached on it many times over the years. Uh, but as we look at this historical narrative, I think four observations uh, kind of rise from the surface of the text in these nine verses. First thing that we see is that suffering can be sudden. Suffering can be sudden. So last week, Paul was being led by the Roman commander, Claudia Lysias, into the barracks, that fortress of Antonia in the northwest part of the temple connected to, the, to, to Herod's temple. And as he was leading him away, Paul, if you recall, asked to be permitted to speak to the crowd, the, the irate, deceived crowd. And we summarized that speech last week, but we pick up with a narrative this morning with those fateful words in the midst of his speech that caused a spontaneous reaction from the crowd as they sought to kill Paul. So we looked at verse 22 last week, but let's look at it again. They listened to him. Paul is speaking here from the porch steps outside the temple. They listened to him until this word. Remember what he had said that caused them to really spontaneously erupt? He had said essentially, God has sent me to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, these unbelieving Jews can't have that. Dirty, rotten, filthy Gentiles? What do you mean? God? God God's going to send you to the Gentiles? You're crazy, Paul. When he said that, they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes, I mean, you guess this was total mayhem. This was complete, irrational, irate response. They threw dust into the air. You can just picture them bending over, rawr, going bananas in berserk like a crazy crowd. So I wonder, as Paul was speaking, and I encouraged you to remember last week to go back and read that speech. We just kind of summarized it. But I wonder, as, if, as he was giving that speech, and as the speech went on, if he might have begun to think things were calming down. You know, maybe he had dodged a bullet. People seem to have his attention. At least Luke, the narrator, doesn't give us any indication that there were a bunch of outbursts until this moment. But just as he was beginning to really make his case and seemed like he was connecting, and people were listening to his explanation of his journey, another outburst occurs. Suddenly. And in fact, you know, that, that's the way, that's what makes suffering tough. Because it, it often happens when you least expect it. You know, and, 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 and what can be particularly frustrating, and maybe you felt like this, is, you know, you've endured the worst of a particular hardship, and just when you feel like you're climbing out the other side, another shoe drops. You ever been there? 
And then you go, not again. And I think maybe that's what Paul was thinking. It shouldn't have surprised him uh, because Jesus, of course, as I said, had told him on the road to Damascus that he would suffer many things for the Lord's sake. But I think it was the suddenness of this particular new round that, that jumps off the page. If I were Paul, I would be yelling, oh, no, not again. Just leave me alone, you know. And there was, as we talked about last week, there was so much confusion and some people shouting one thing and another. Nobody really knew what was going on. The Roman guard commander didn't know really what the deal was. It is the unexpected that often trouble us the most. Wise Solomon gives us so much, you know, philosophical, spot-on, infallible truth in his writings, but he gives us a great perspective on unexpected trouble. I love this passage in Ecclesiastes 9. I returned and saw under the sun that, what did he see? He said, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor the bread to the wise, nor the riches to men of understanding, nor favor to men of skill, but time and chance happen to all. In other words, sudden calamity, sudden suffering can befall anyone. Doesn't matter how swift you are. It doesn't matter how strong you are. Doesn't matter how wise you are. Suffering is no respecter of persons, to borrow a phrase. Some of you may be familiar with the story of Molly Bloom, uh, Denver native, uh, Olympic world class skier. Uh, her life's goal was to be on the platform in the Olympics. And she had a really good shot. I mean, she was top level. Per, uh, competitor and uh, many years ago when she was doing the qualifying rounds or actually in the competition in Salt Lake she came down the hill and in a complete chance accident the little uh, twigs that the course uh, keepers throw out on the snow just so that the skiers can kind of get some depth perspective when it's particularly cloudy and hazy one of those, it was sticking up, and it was so cold that it was really frozen. And as she skied by, it clipped her uh, ski boot, which she had set at 15, by the way, which is as tight as you can get them. Basically, you're going to break your ankle off before you lose a ski. But yet it hit at the clip in just the right spot at that just precise moment that it unhinged it, and she lost a ski and it went head over heels and was out of the out of the race that to me is a perfect example of what solomon is saying here time and chance happen to all he goes on for man also does not know his time like fish taken in a cruel net i mean that's a that's a really cool word picture isn't it you know here you are you know just swimming along little nemo or whatever and all of a sudden wow that worm looks good next thing you know your world is rocked. You're inside a boat, flopping around, and not to mention the pain in your lip. Or like birds caught in a snare. And then here's the analogy. So the sons of men are snared in an evil time. Remember, evil in the Hebrew text doesn't mean morally bad always. It just means tough time, difficult time, turbulent time. When it falls upon them suddenly. So I think the first thing that we see in Paul's experience is that suffering can be sudden. But 
Clearly, suffering can also be severe. Suffering can also be severe. We read on in our text, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging. So, you know, I'm not a big fan of modern paraphrastic versions of the Bible. I think we should let the Bible be translated word for word, a literal, formal equivalent translation. But if I ever lost my mind and I decided to create a paraphrastic translation of the Greek, I would translate this, and he said that he should be brought to Gitmo and waterboarded. That, that's what I would, that's the way I would translate this. Scourging. See, Claudius Lysias, the commander, really could not understand why the Jews reacted as they did. I mean, he's just a Roman He's a commander of these thousands of soldiers. He's in charge of keeping peace. His life is at stake. If he ever lets peace you know, subside and there's all these uproars and stuff, his, his neck is on the line. He absolutely couldn't tolerate a riot. So he says, i got to get to the bottom of this. What's going on? And so not really understanding the nature of the Jews' problem with Paul, he says, I'm going to torture Paul, if necessary, to get him to tell me what in the world's going on here. That's what a scourging was. Also called a flogging, it was much more severe than a beating. The whip that was employed could be made of several strips of leather fastened at one end or two interwoven leather strips. It was often nicknamed a scorpion because of the barbs in its end. And it's one of the cruelest instruments of punishment mentioned in the Bible. The severity of the punishment could be increased by inserting pieces of metal or bone into the leather. And before a scourging, the victim would be examined for physical fitness so that if death resulted from the blows, no blame was placed on the person who was administering the scourging. The victim was stripped to the waist and tied to a pillar, his hands bound with leather straps. And the severity of a scourging depended upon the crime. Although Mosaic law did set an upper limit of 40 lashes. We read about that in Deuteronomy 25. But by the time you get to the first century, that number had been lowered by one. Remember Paul said in his letter to 2 Corinthians, written right before this happened, which is another amazing thing as you think about Paul's journey of suffering. He says in 2 Corinthians 11:24, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. So that's 39. For you public school folks, that's 39, right? I'm just kidding. I'm, I was public school. Um, so this would be number six. This would be his sixth time he received 39 lashes, right? They could be administered on both the chest and the back. Uh, in offenses against the law, synagogue authorities, Jewish synagogue leaders, the scribes and so forth, the, the priests, uh, they could administer the scourgings. And it was also used, as we see here, as a means of interrogating a prisoner. And so that's why Luke tells us here he was examined under scourging. It was basically torturing. Suffering can be severe. Suffering can be severe. That's why Proverbs tells us, again, another proverb of Solomon, in the day, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. In his last letter that he wrote, just before he was martyred, from a prison cell, 
in 67 AD, 10 years after this scourging that he's facing, Paul says, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You know, I, I don't think we as American Christians in the West really have any idea what it means to suffer for the Lord. In my latest book, I have a chapter on the rise of Christian persecution and anti-Christian sentiment. And there's no question that it's on the rise. And even in America, we're seeing Christians suffer, wrongly imprisoned, uh, having their rights stripped away. But when we think about what Paul went through, and of course when we think about what our Savior himself went through, it kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? Because Jesus not only was scourged, but then he was crucified. So Paul says we should endure hardship as a good soldier. He wrote in Romans, which again was written just before the events we're talking about today. Remember, we're talking about events that happened in 57 AD, June 2nd, 57 AD, as we reconstruct the timeline of Paul's trip to Jerusalem for Pentecost. <clears throat> He wrote Romans in 56. He says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In other words, the more intense the suffering, even in the most extreme case, it pales in comparison to what it's going to be like when we see Jesus face to face someday. So suffering can be sudden, suffering can be severe, but it can also be senseless. See, as we're going to find out, the story takes an interesting plot twist here because Paul should have been protected as a Roman citizen. I mean, this was the last thing he expected. I mean, he knew that obviously there was some tense situation. There was, the crowd was unsettled. It was a volatile situation. But as a Roman citizen, he, was, he could never be uh, scourged. And yet, suffering doesn't really care. Doesn't care if it makes sense, you know. We read on in our text, as they bound him with thongs, preparing, you know, for the scourging, Paul said to the centurion, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? So again, Roman law protected Roman citizens from the scourge before they went to trial, and even if they were found guilty. The fact that Paul raised this question in his defense rather than demanding his release shows that he had self-control. He was in the power of the Spirit. He wasn't panicking. You know, I would have been panicking. I would have been going, wait, wait. Don't you know who I am? You can't do this. I demand my rights. I'm a Roman citizen. But according to Luke's account, Paul simply speaks calmly to the centurion. Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned. See, sometimes suffering, often, I guess I should say, suffering doesn't make sense. You know, I mean, that's part of what makes the suffering so bad is that it's unfair, you know. Um, and that's why I think Peter said in his letter, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is just to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. See, we've got our perspective kind of turned upside down. We think 
that as long as I dot my I's, cross my T's, come to church every week, read my Bible regularly, pray occasionally, give money to some good cause, as long as I dot my I's and cross my T's, everything's going to be fine. The first time something bad happens, we have a flat tire or anywhere on the continuum of inconveniences to severe suffering, we begin to blame God and we think, you know, this, this isn't fair. This makes no sense. Why am I suffering? Well, guess what? The Bible tells us as a believer that's the nature of suffering. It's not supposed to make sense. And certainly, uh, Paul could make that claim in his situation. Peter uh, goes on in the next chapter to say, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfast in the faith. You know, I can't tell you the number of times the Bible exhorts believers to simply trust God. And it's a shame that in our culture today, those words have become categorized as trite. So that when a brother or sister is going through a tough time and you say, look, just trust the Lord. You know, secular psychologists will tell you, oh, that's a stupid thing to say. It's not stupid. It's what the Word of God says. Because we are to walk by faith. There's no way you can navigate the inequities of life, the unfairness of life, without faith. If it made sense, we wouldn't need faith, right? It's the very fact that it doesn't make sense, that we have to see the unseeable. We have to look beyond what you can see and feel and touch and trust God, the creator of the universe. So as you're doing battle in this spiritual warfare with the enemy who's walking around like a roaring lion, we need to remember to remain steadfast in the faith. But notice this. And I love this passage, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. When suffering never seems to end, consider the fact that your brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the world have experienced similar suffering. See, Paul, you know, this was, what did we say, from 33 AD to 57 AD, 24 years, so more than two decades into church history. And Paul was by no means the first believer to face suffering and wonder, well, this doesn't make sense. I mean, we could think of Peter and John. We could think of Stephen. Stephen being falsely accused as the the irate mob picked up stones to hurl at him. And he's thinking, I just love Jesus. He's the Messiah. I grew up waiting for him. He came. I believed in him. He saved me from the penalty of sin. And now I'm trying to tell others to be saved under the penalty, from the penalty of sin. And my kinsmen are trying to kill me and did kill me. Suffering can really make no sense at times. James tells us, my brethren, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and very merciful. So trite or not, when we're facing suffering, we need to understand that last sentence, the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. You know, the world we live in is not the world God created. God didn't mess it up. We did. And yet God, 
as we trust him and walk by faith, stands ready to help us navigate it, no matter how tough it gets. So suffering can be sudden, suffering can be severe, suffering can be senseless, and I think the, the thing we see in the remaining passages in this narrative is that suffering can be ceaseless. My apologies to you ADD people that are frustrated that I couldn't think of an S. But it sounds like an S. Does that count? So after dodging the bullet with the commander, literally being tied up, ready to be, you know, scourged, now he turns around and it just takes on a different face. Now he finds himself before the Sanhedrin. What do we read? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander. Remember, the centurion was a commander of a hundred soldiers. That's why they call it centurion. And then the commander, Claudius Lysias, was over all of them. He had ten you know, centurions under him, so he had a thousand soldiers under him. So the centurion that was preparing Paul for the flogging goes to the commander and says, Hey, take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. And then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? And Paul said, Yes. And the commander answered, Well, with a large sum I obtained this citizenship. What is he talking about there? Well, during the reign of Emperor Claudius, which was 41 to 54 A.D., just prior to this time, it was possible to obtain Roman citizenship by paying a high price, by paying for it. Claudius Lysias, this commander, uh, his name indicates he had some connection with the Emperor Claudius, and the, the commander had evidently purchased his citizenship from Rome during the reign of that emperor. And this had not always been possible during the empire, but, but it was during Claudius uh, Lysias, the commander's lifetime. And so he's evidently referring to the fact that, hey, I paid a lot of money to become a Roman citizen. Who, who do you think you are just claiming to be one? Um, before the, the Roman emperor Claudius, uh, you know, a government could give citizenship to people just because of their service or because as a reward for, for some high official or something. This is probably, by the way, how Paul's father became a Roman citizen. And Paul was a Roman citizen because he inherited that status as a son of a Roman citizen. And Roman citizens, we know from Josephus, the first century historian, usually kept the documents proving their status in a secure place, like in a safe, we might say, at home. Now, they didn't have you know, anything external identifying them as citizens. People just normally accepted a verbal claim of Roman citizenship at face value because they knew that to claim citizenship falsely was a capital offense. You could be killed for doing it. So Claudius Lysias took the course of action that was most prudent for him. He accepted Paul's claim. The last thing he wanted to do, having almost flogged a Roman citizen, was then accuse Paul of lying. One of my uh, professors years ago was a guy named Daryl Bach. He's kind of a Greek expert, a uh, scholar, premier scholar of our day. Uh, he said it was, it's very possible even that Paul might have carried his credentials of Roman citizenship in a, a little tablet. It's called a dictus, D-Y, 
C-H-T-U-S. It's a Greek word that just means almost like a, you know how people have a tablet or an iPad today and they get a case for it that opens up? You know, picture that. But it was just a wooden tablet where you could scribble things on it and people would keep things in that. Again, it wasn't customary to walk around with your citizenship credentials, but uh, it's possible that Paul had them with him to prove his Roman citizenship. But Paul said, uh, but I was born a citizen. And I, and I don't know if I could have said that without smirking at this commander. You know, well, good for you. You paid a bunch of money and now you're a citizen. I'm a, I was born a citizen. Right? It's in my blood. Well, then immediately those who were about to examine him, and when you see examine, just read torture, <laughs> withdrew from him and the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him. The soldiers should not have bound Paul, put him in chains, is what Luke tells us, until someone had formally charged him as a Roman citizen with a crime. So the narrative of this action-packed day, the last two weeks we've been all focused on one day, kind of ends after this indication that Paul is a member of two worlds to which he has been sent. He is both a devout Jew, as he tried to explain in his speech, and as he did when the Jewish early believers, the church leaders, remember, set him up to go with these other Jews to fulfill the vow, just to show to the crazy rumor mongers that he's not against the law. He was both a devout Jew, but also a Roman citizen. But Paul's troubles are far from over. Having escaped the scourging, he now, as I said, finds himself in front of the Sanhedrin. So suffering can be ceaseless. Now the next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, this commander just doesn't get it. Why the uproar? He released him from his bonds and, and commanded the chief priests. So now we're going from the Roman leaders to the Jewish leaders. And all of their counsel, the counsel there is a reference to the Sanhedrin, to appear. And he brought Paul down and set him before them. So the commander's ordering this Jewish uh, group, this body, this authoritative body, to meet and examine Paul. Uh, because Claudius, as I mentioned, as the Roman commander, was responsible for keeping peace in Jerusalem and in the temple especially. And if Paul's offenses proved to be nothing, then Claudius would release him. But if the Jews charged him with some religious crime according to Judaism, then the Sanhedrin could tie him and Claudius Lysias could wash his hands of it. Sound familiar? This is the sixth time, at least, that the Sanhedrin had to evaluate the claims of people preaching Christ. The first occasion was when it meant, meant to consider reports about Jesus. John tells us that. The second was in the context of Jesus' trial. The third was in the trial of Peter and John in the early days of the church. Go all the way back to Acts chapters 4 and 5. The fourth was the trial of the twelve, again in Acts 5. The fifth was Stephen's appearance before the Sanhedrin. And now we have a sixth. So what was the Sanhedrin? It comes from a compound word in Greek, sunedrion, sun meaning together, uh, and hedra meaning seat. So they all sat together, and if you can see from the inset, I know it's kind of small on the screen there, but that little red spot shows you where it was just inside the temple courts. It was like a just a meeting room, right? 
Um, and, you know, if you see that red spot, let me see if I can point it out here. Uh, so we're right over here. And just outside that, these were the steps, you know, going around. And this is where Paul had given his speech. And that's where we've spent a lot of our time the last couple weeks. So if you walk through one of these gates, this room right here was called, you know, the, the, the chamber of hewn stone. It's where the Sanhedrin uh, would meet. And the Mishnah, which was really the, one of the earliest collections, non-inspired, it's not a part of the Bible, but of Jewish oral traditions, calls it the Great Tribunal, the Great Sanhedrin, or just the Sanhedrin. It was a meeting of the 71. Three groups made up this body, and it's kind of fascinating to me to see how it was laid out with the high priest sitting on the throne there and then all these other scribes and Pharisees. There were The rulers were one part of these 71 people. They were the Sadducees, and they were the most powerful men in the Sanhedrin. Uh, some believe that they comprised an executive council within the Sanhedrin of 10 wealthy and distinguished citizens, kind of the elite of the elite. Then you had the elders and the scribes and, you know, the, the rulers and the elders were all of the Sadducees. The scribes, the third group, were the Pharisees. They were the teachers of the law. And not surprisingly, like we might see in a, in a display from Parliament in, in, in the United Kingdom or in our own halls of Congress, they didn't always agree on everything. And so Paul is thrust before them. You can see in the, the artist's depiction there, the accused standing front and center. And Paul responded the way the Bible tells us to respond, to seemingly ceaseless suffering. He just defends uh, himself. So David tells us in the Psalms a thousand years before all of this that many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Suffering is ubiquitous. It is ceaseless. And that being the case, how should we handle it? Well, go back to Peter. Peter said, what credit is it when you're beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? In other words, if you deserve it, if it's just, okay, nothing special about taking it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, when we do good and suffer, if we take it patiently, this is commendable before God. Now, i got to tell you, most of us are terrible at this. You know, when we face unjust suffering, we whine, we complain, we go to all the questions, why me, why now, why this, why again? But you want to hear those wonderful words, well done, good and faithful servant? Take it patiently. Paul said in Romans that we should be patient in tribulation. I mean, if my estimate of the trajectory of things in the present church age is, any, is, is accurate, I think we're going to have lots of opportunities to exercise patience and tribulation in the coming months and years if the Lord doesn't come back. Going back to 1 Corinthians 15, after talking about the rapture and the, the fact that we are going to be rescued at some point, he says to the Corinthians, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Steadfast and immovable. That was Paul. Even though suffering was sudden, 
severe, senseless, ceaseless, Paul was steadfast and immovable. So the Bible gives us quite a bit of information about suffering, but it doesn't leave us hopeless and helpless. There are some things we can do when we are facing suffering. For example, James, the Lord's brother, says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Prayer ought to be the first refuge when suffering. Lord, deliver me. Lord, help me. Lord, give me grace. Lord, help me to respond appropriately. Lord, help me to be patient. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, In everything give thanks. Uh, and there's no exception. When's the last time you thanked God for your suffering? Going back to Peter, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful Creator. Lord, I commit my life to You in the midst of this suffering. I want to do good. I want to be an example. Again, Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't, be, don't think it's strange when you have this fiery trial, which we looked at earlier. But he says, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. What's another way that we can respond to suffering? By remembering the sacrifice of our Lord. You know, Corey Ten Boom writes about that. You know, we're facing unspeakable suffering and we think, you know what, my Lord endured much worse. He says, if you're reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Don't ever forget that. We have a Savior who has been tempted in all points just as we are. That word tempted can mean tried or tempted. And James, of course, says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Now, if I had led with that voice verse, we probably would have all gone, oh, you know, that's so trite. <laughs> But after kind of giving a biblical survey of suffering and what the Bible says about suffering and what we learn from Paul's example of suffering, it kind of puts it in perspective, doesn't it? So what's the takeaway this morning? The takeaway is something that uh, my wife, a phrase that she used to describe her mom who passed away recently. And she said, she suffered well. She suffered well. I hope that can be said of us. You know, she was in horrible pain. I never heard her talk about it. She talked about it privately with Wendy or others, but you never know. Suffer well. We have such an entitlement attitude in our culture that when we face injustices, it's easy to, to rise up. And there's a time for that. By the way, next week, I'm still beginning to put the uh, passage together. I don't know exactly what I'm going to call it, but we're going to see that there's a time for righteous anger. There's a time for that. And that can be one way to suffer well. But whatever you're facing, suffer well to bring glory to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this uh, passage that we studied today and all of the... Uh, the depth of it, the examples that we see in it, and all of the cross-references that really undergird the actions of uh, the Apostle Paul. Lord, I pray that we would follow his example, but even more that we would follow the exhortation of Scripture that says so much about 
how to suffer. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that hasn't taken that first initial step of trusting in your Son and our Savior who died and rose again for our sins, that today, in simple childlike faith, they would place their faith in Jesus as the only one who can save them. And Lord, we, uh, we just pray now that these passages would come to our remembrance as we go throughout this week, whatever uh, we may face, small or big, that we would keep our eyes fixed on you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.